You're listening to GP Works, the podcast for and about general practice brought to you by the Irish College of General Practitioners. I'm Aileen O'Mara and in this episode we're bringing you a recording of our panel discussion at the June annual conference held as part of Rural Wonka in the University of Limerick in June. The international panel discussion was chaired by Dr Dermot Quinlan and GPs discussed the common challenges in providing quality health care close to their patients. Thank you all for coming back in again. And you're most welcome to this plenary session at the ICGP Wonka 2022 conference. I do appreciate some people are still having their, getting their tea and coffee and we'll come back in as, as the session progresses. But I'm anxious that we, we uh, get, get underway because it's a really busy program and there's lots of parallel workshops. So we do try to need to keep things moving fairly much on schedule so that all the other workshops aren't discommoded. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce my colleague, Dr. Ewan McPhee from, from Australia. Thanks very much, Dean Wood. Uh, welcome, and I'll say good day. Uh, I'm from Australia. Oi, oi, oi. Look, I, I um, have the pleasure of introducing um, this topic, which is the uh, general practice vision for the future, and just briefly give you a, a sense of where I'm from. I'm from central Queensland. Uh, I'm a rural uh, GP with obstetric skills, uh, also a practice owner. And I guess uh, I'd like to think of myself as a bit like Declan Fox, who may be here, who spoke about is general, rural journalism dead yesterday, but actually taking the opposite view and saying that uh, rural journalism is alive and well, uh, and also that my practice demonstrates both the past, uh, myself, as an ageing, white, middle-aged doctor who's been in the, pra- in the, in the town for many years, uh, and the future, which is a cohort of young clinicians with portfolio careers, a mixture of hospital medicine, general practice, predominantly women of childbearing age who are having uh, that the right and opportunity to have their families and their, their um, professional careers together in a rural town. So I'm really excited about that. I am also the chair of the Respectful Workplace Committee of the Australian College of Medicine. What that committee is looking at is safety for clinicians in the workplace, particularly around gender diversity, cultural diversity, and, uh, and, and matters of bullying, harassment, and, and those sorts of issues which we've really never, never grappled with properly in our professions. And certainly, more recently in Australia, the Medical Board has really started to look at the culture of medicine in our country and how we treat our young. So look, I'm going to hand off to Diamond uh, to carry on. and. Uh, Th- thank you very much. And I, I spent some time in Australia as well, uh, in, in, not in a rural area, well, not in a remote area, but I, I did obstetric training when I was there, and certainly some of my GP colleagues would have done home deliveries and low-risk deliveries. So the, the health environment culture is very different, uh, and when I came back, my obstetric skills uh, were never put to the test again. So we, you know, we do recognise the importance of uh, GPs in our subspecialist interests. Um, Liam was talking about hurling to some of us earlier, and I know there was a fantastic hurling display on last night. And uh, my hurling career uh, ended as quickly as it started, I'm sorry to say. At the age of about eight, on my first outing on the pitch, I went up, put my hand up to catch the slitter, and somebody hit me across the back of the hand with the hurley. And for those who have never played hurley, it's like getting hit with a baseball bat across the back of your hands. And, and for me, that was the end of my hurling career. I, you know, it st- stopped and started on that day. 
And it was only when my children started playing hurling and I was recounting this tale of woe to them and how dangerous hurling was that, uh, that they said to me, but Dad, you know, you're meant to put your hurley up behind your hand so you don't get hit. So um, that, that was my hurling career. Uh, Liam is um, the hurling team doctor for the for Clare County team, in case you don't know. And that's a really prestigious, uh, high-pressured role. And uh, Clare are playing Cork today in Thurles. And my four sons will be up there cheering for Cork. Um, yeah, so you can see there's a bit of tension arising here. Um, <laughs> um, and, but, you know, I, I do know something about, uh, you know, Liam and, uh, you know, being a team doctor, because I also provide medical services to our local team. The White's Cross uh, junior under 14s may not be, appear as demanding, but they're, they're every bit as passionate about their game. And Liam really is rather lucky. He only has to provide care to the Clare team, whereas when I'm on the sideline, it's both teams. So if, if one of our team, White's Cross team, get a laceration, out comes the suture pack or, or glue them. If the opposition come, I really want them to experience our local healthcare. So I give them a letter and send them into our ED, <laughs> knowing they'll spend about 20 hours there. So, And just to conclude, uh, Liam, unfortunately, will we'll have to depart this uh, conference later this morning. Uh, and the police are coming to collect him because Liam is the team doctor. So he has a police escort to make sure he arrives in Thurles on time. And really, just to forestall the outcome of the match, please do express your commiserations to Liam when he returns afterwards. <laughs> so with that, I, I'd like to introduce you to my colleague and my friend, Dr. Fika Zia. And Fika, um has come to Ireland with her husband and two children, and they're really, they're, they're living in County Wexford now. And Fika was a GP in, in rural Afghanistan, where she set up uh, a maternity training unit to teach community midwives and community healthcare assistants to improve uh, maternal outcomes. And Fika vastly reduced the maternal mortality in her district in rural Afghanistan. <laughs> The price she paid for that was that when the Taliban took over, Fika and her husband were on a Taliban death list and went into hiding. And it was only because of their enduring strong friendships with Dr. Marion Dyer and others in New York and London that an international effort was put together to get the, <coughs> the Fika family, Fika and the Zia family, out of Afghanistan and into Europe. And we are delighted that they are here in Ireland. And just in case you're wondering what's the hurling piece, the, FICA, the two FICA children are now starting to play hurling in Ireland. So <laughs> I wish them more luck than me. Thank you. As my, Dr. Durmit said, I'm FICA, yeah, I'm from Afghanistan. I, when uh, in 2000, I uh, get married with my husband and I uh, came from Mazar Sharif to Tahar province. It is a, a small and a ruler press, there was uh, very few midwives available in the county and they provide services to the mother and children. There were just few of midwives on that time and the mortal, mortal, maternal mortality was too high on that time. It was about six, 1,600 per 100,000. And uh, 
it was a tough time for the mothers. Uh, uh, then we decided to, uh, to find some solution to reduce the um, maternity, uh, maternity uh, mortality rate uh, to reduce it. At the beginning, we started to train traditional birth attendants at least because at, on that time, we can't find educated girls in rural area to bring them for education. We started with the oldest in, uh, women uh, as a traditional birth attendants. At least they know the danger sign and they uh, can refer uh, the women to the hospitals or to other doctors. And also they can, uh, they know the danger sign of the mother during pregnancy. Then uh, we uh, did negotiation and uh, we started to make a, a community midwifery education schools. In 2004, we established that school and we trained seven batch of midwives, about 200 midwives, young girls. We brought the um, girls from the very remote, remote area, rural area to the town and we trained them for two years according to a standard based uh, skills and after uh, training they went back to their home and they did uh, provide uh, uh, services to the mother and children in their own counties in their own uh, areas villages and fortunately after uh, that in 2011 the maternal, uh, maternal mortality rate was uh, very uh, decreased it uh, became about 375 per uh, 100,000 women. And also the number of uh, infant mortality rate was uh, reduced. At the beginning, it was uh, 275 per 1,000 alive birth. Then it became about 150. And uh, we, we was, we, I was very proud of them that they all uh, worked very hard and uh, the number of mortality, maternal mortality become uh, reduced at, at the time. Uh, but uh, I'm happy at this moment that when we are here or other doctors are escaped somewhere else, but the uh, trend midwife that they are from the rural area and they are living in the villages, at least they provide health services to the mother and to the children at this moment at this bad situation that Taliban don't allow women to go uh, to hospital or to go to the health facilities. Uh, but uh, I think it is again a tough uh, time for the mothers and the number will be uh, increased and according uh, media and uh, something that we knew from the, uh, um, our country now at this moment, the mortality uh, rate again become increased and it is a tough time for uh, the mothers and for our, and I hope that uh, Afghanistan, in Afghanistan will be again peaceful place and we should train again midwives and provide health services for the mothers. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll, I'll like to introduce uh, Karen, would you like to uh, go next and maybe give us, so th thank you Dr. Zia from Afghanistan, really pro providing a, 
you know, a very graphic account of her life and the price she and her family have paid and the phenomenal work they had done in Afghanistan. And we might move to Australia next with Karen and Bruce, if you'd like to give us your perspective of general practice. Um, <clears throat> yes, thank you. Um, Professor Karen Price, I'm uh, president of the RACGP in Australia. And um, what is the vision? Well, we're, we're at a really interesting time in general practice and um, I think we stand on a precipice of change and where that change will lead us is a little bit unknown. We could be disastrous. Um, or it could be a real revitalisation, and of course I'm hoping for the latter. Um, we have had in Australia a long period of defunding um, of general practice in terms of patient rebates, um, and that has forced us into a um, decreasing available workforce, so that only 15.2% of current uh, young doctors have an intention to do general practice, and uh, this is a really big concern. One of the issues that I've talked about uh, with our Irish colleagues was our inability to articulate what is generalism when a linear maths approach, an RCT approach, is so easy to understand. We have a, a, an issue, we have an intervention, we have an outcome, and we can measure it. But the outcomes in general practice are not so easy. But we've got a very big reliance on um, quantitative data, and I believe we need um, a mixed methods approach in research terms and uh, more qualitative data. We also need to understand that longitudinally there is already evidence for the, you know, supremacy of uh, general practice and primary care. So in Australia, the government um, visibly winces whenever I mention that only 15.2% of new graduates have an intention to work in general practice. Um, and so, and through COVID, like probably many of you, Australia came to understand just how vital general practice was, which was uh, certainly um, made, I made point after point about that in the media, as did my colleague Sarah Chalmers of the Rural College um, and, and uh, many other colleagues here, Michael Clements of our rural faculty. So um, we've got a, a lot of, uh, uh, I think, I guess, goodwill towards general practice and how we translate that. So over the last four or five years, uh, there's been committees lots of committees, um, <laughs> to formulate yet another plan, and it's called the 10-year plan. And uh, we were going to present some slides together, but if you bear, me, bear with me, I'll just read out some of the main themes that I thought were really interesting. Um, that this was a group that was put together with the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, with the RACGP, with ACRAM, with Rural Doctors Association, with consumer health groups as well, and some allied health groups. So the 10-year plan, which is a big document, and I won't bore you with it, um, talks about shifting the dialogue from illness to well-being, from patient management to patient-centeredness, from treatment to health prevention and promotion. And I was talking with one of my colleagues, Jeff Urquhart, I don't know if he's here, about how we don't have data for when we work really hard with a patient over five years and we prevent their heart attack. There's no way we can represent that in a data point. Um, competing providers, which it is in Australia where we have a fee-for-service system largely, and unfortunately that can engender a sense of competition, which I think, Claire, goes towards some of what you were talking about in terms of a loss of collegiality and potential um, reduction in professionalism. Um, so competing providers, we want to move that to a healthcare team. Um, and a volume-based system to a, val a value-based system, and finally, a fragmented system to a coordinated and inter interconnected system. Now, there's a whole lot of other chapters about that, and our next phase will be an implementation phase. But underneath all of that is we have to make general practice 
the career of choice. We have to make it so that it's something that the young people want to do, that it's rewarding for them, that it brings them a sense of satisfaction and meaning in their life, because at the moment um, they're graduating a bit older because we have postgraduate degrees. Um, there's a lot of uh, women, uh, and they're often staying in hospitals because there's um, better maternity and parental leave entitlements there. Plus, the young men, to their credit, are also wanting to be present and available fathers. Um, and of course, I'm not just talking about heteronormative couples, there may be other um, con conceptualisations of families. So um, there's a whole change going on. Uh, and I think in general practice with a fee-for-service where there's no entitlements, that's a big issue. I know that uh, in Western Australia, a large, pretty empty place, but um, a, a desert place, um, one of the biggest issues for uh, getting young doctors into those places is childcare. So these are the big structural reforms that we need, and that's why we stand on the, um, I guess, precipice of challenge. Um, and I hope that we can implement that in a very satisfactory way, but I'll certainly be um, advocating very strongly, as I know many of my colleagues will be. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Um, I'm Bruce Chater. I'm the chair of Rural Wonka, um, the World Organisation of Family Doctors Rural Group. I just want to focus a bit more on, on the rural side of things, um, uh, but in doing that I wanted to frame it in general practice, talk a little bit about, to me, the issue about visions, if you like, and then on to what we can do in rural. Um, the, it is, we are on the, we're in the general practice family, if you like, and so we suffer the same maladies at times and the same hopes and the same aspirations and the maladies are at the moment the lack of interest in in general practice and I think that's an issue for all of us. The heavier workload that I think has been brought out uh, some of the workforce issues but we are strong, we're, we're highly organised, we're well regarded, we're effective and I think we need to say that all the time. Um, Dr Zia just reminds me as a group a world group, we have half of our council is from lower middle income countries and just the struggle that they have on a day-to-day -day basis um, to provide healthcare, seeing sometimes having to see 100 patients a day, trying to fight through adversity, um, having um, uh, yeah, to, to push through the system and not really be valued sometimes, particularly the generalists in the system, but they do inspirational change. And I keep seeing that all the time, and we need to celebrate that, I think. When it comes to visions, visions can be ephemeral, and I think, you know, when people talk about innovations and visions, it's like everything's gonna change. But most of the time, most things persist. And what we need to do is build on our strengths, I think, and be able to say, look, how do we improve things? How do we make things better with the system that we've got? It's not going to change, I hope, totally. Um, I don't think we're going to have a complete Uber revolution like the cab drivers did, but you never know. Um, but I think the, if we trust that because we're valued, because we do a good job, because we're very effective, um, we can build on that. I'm, I've got a lot of hope. I'm a very much a glass half full person and, and I see in this conference and also amongst our colleagues um, 
Professor Strass has just come from the Scott Gym um, graduation where they graduated in St Andrews and had a police escort through the town at graduation to be, so the town could celebrate them. And I think we need to capture what's in the communities in Afghanistan, what's in our rural communities, that sense of hope that if we can get the students out there that this university is doing and then take them on to registrars in those towns and let the town show them a good time, um, then you can attract young doctors there. I think the pandemic has shown that there's a lot to be said for a caring community, for someone who you can talk to at the pub, someone who you can talk to in your practice and know them and know that you're caring for them. So how do we do that? I think we need the pipeline, we need the right skills, they need to be properly remunerated. Um, uh, and I think the difference between specialists and generalists is a disaster that way, that we really need to all be seen as specialists. Um, we need to cater for the next generation, and I think there are ways of doing that. And, and Ewan's practice and my practice, we're trying to make sure that we've, we've got flexible arrangements within our practice, that the, the modern generation can, can fit in with that quite nicely. We need to work as teams. We've got Shelley Nolan, who's the Chief, Health, uh, Chief Nursing Officer in Queensland, will be talking later. She's a nurse, and we're trying to make sure the nurses are up to full scope. We're up to full scope. So we've got really functioning teams. Um, we need slightly bigger teams. So the era of one doctor towns is, I think, fading, and we need at least two but big teams around that. Technology can be a two-edged sword, but I think... I'm. It's great to see here, and I think mostly in Australia. IT, we're fully IT in our practice, paperless practices. Uh, point of care testing allows us to do things on site. Telehealth can be a two-edged sword. It can take stuff away, but give it to us. Um, uh, I think there's lots of hope in the vision, um, but we have to be wary of the pitfalls that we might have to um, that we could fall into, the potholes we could fall into. But I think if we go forward with enthusiasm, I'm very much one, just in closing, just to say that we don't, we shouldn't have a deficit view all the time. The Aboriginal people in our country talk about they're sick of that. They're sick of people saying, you know, we've got to fix the alcohol problem, we've got to fix this, we've got to fix that, and not concentrating on the good things we have the community we have and build on that in our vision rather than just being, you know, this is terrible, we're in a, a difficult plight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bruce. And just before Claire comes in, I had the pleasure of talking to Bruce's wife, Anne, last night. And uh, she said that Bruce actually did spend, so he, he has walked the walk, spent 16 years as a single-handed doctor in a town. And I said, well, how did he get locums? And uh, he had a very novel approach. They got uh, an English locum, and they went off travelling for quite a while and left her there, and obviously showed her a, a lovely town in rural Australia, and she ended up marrying the local accountant. So, <laughs> so it's now grown to a four-doctor practice, um, so you know, maybe we should listen to what he says because he's obviously walked the walk successfully. So over to you, Claire. Thank you. And... Uh... I, how can I disagree with anything that's been said? But 
I think that general practice has gone through many revolutions. So I started when it was the cottage industry, single-handed, small practices, went through the industrial revolution when we modernized, industrialized, computerized, and now we're in the digital revolution. And certainly from where I sit over the last 33 years as a GP, I don't think GPs can change anymore. I think we have flexed and adapted and learnt and modernised uh, and shifted, and we've done everything. I think, and whilst I'm pleased you're having a 10-year plan, but the last time I was in Australia, there was another plan. I think GPs need to stop creating vision documents based on themselves. I think unless we get the rest of the system, and I think you touch them, to change, then we are stuck in the medieval times. So many of you probably don't know, but the division between primary and secondary care really started after the Great Plague, uh, which is when the, the grocers became the GPs, and we were the only ones that were essentially, we, we got permission to prescribe, and the hospital doctors, the physicians, uh, looked after the hospitals. The physicians during the Great Plague left and went into the countryside and left the GPs to manage the poor and the sick. Now, it's not quite that before any of you historians. But that's when the division started. So we've gone for three, four hundred years in this state. Now, unless, and, and, and oddly enough, developing countries do this better. And I don't want to get into debates about integrated care. We are fed up now with the terms. Fed up. We had more of the future 15 years ago than we have today. Until we get every single specialist hospital doctor trained in general practice for a minimum of six months, irrespective of their destiny they're going to end up, and I don't mean as an FY1, which is a very house officer, you know, straight from... But I mean two to three years on is their qualification into their training. Unless every single one of them does that. Unless we create transitional teams to look after patients across those divides, because we know their illnesses don't stop at the front door of the hospitals or the, the consulting room. Unless we start to look at the funding formula, and by the way, forget this, putting a figure on it, primary care needs enough funding to do the job it needs to do. So stop, in, in our country, we put a figure on it, 10, 15, 20%, it might be 70%. And then we mandate through medical school the numbers, which certain countries do, to go into general practice primary care. Unless we skill up and open up our profession to allow other non-GPs to work within general practice. I'm afraid we are doomed. We're doomed because of what I said earlier. GPs want to do it all. If you ask them not to do something, they start to say, well, what? nobody will do it. So unless we shift the rest of the system, we are going to, as we are doing across the world, falling over. So, and I've come to this view, by the way, I've started working in general practice probably when I was a 10-year-old with my father who was a single-handed practice, so I've seen it now for 50 years. We cannot change. We can modernise our digital and you can do all that, but we have had a 1,000% increase in digital consultations during the pandemic. We cannot do any more. A quarter of hospitals in the UK have no electronic prescribing, so they ask us to do it. I'm not against hospitals, but unless we change the system, I think that we're on the hiding to nothing. So I'd just like to say that. Tom. Th thank you very much, Claire, for some very forthright and, and really good food for thought and uh, long, hard thinking to do. Uh, Tom, if you'd like to. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dermot. Well, I'm president of the 
Irish College of General Practitioners in another 30 minutes. So you're stuck with me until then. Um, the, uh, I, I do think that the profile that we've had uh, in general practice in the last two years uh, is a mixed blessing because uh, it expanded our role, uh, brought us to the attention Perhaps have forgotten about it. So, uh, oh, close that way. Yes. Okay. So, so you yeah. have to listen to that again now. Start with the thirty minutes of president. All right. <laughs> uh, right. I was just saying that the uh, attention that COVID has brought to us and our success in dealing with this has increased our profile, and that's a mixed blessing because it does mean that we're at the top table and if you're at the top table it will attract a lot more uh, criticism, uh, will attract uh, a lot more adverse comment and uh, we are nice people and we do find adverse comment very difficult but we are going to have to have a lot more oil on our feathers I think over the next uh, five years. I do think our relationship with patients will have to be recalibrated. I've represented the uh, ICGP at a discussion, roundtable discussion with the Medical Council guideline. One of the things they have is partnership with patients. And I have to say, now I can give Claire a few years, which pains me greatly. I have seen partnership decline considerably with patients, and I've seen a rise in consumer. And that's even in, 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 in a deprived area. It's a much more consumeristic approach. That's difficult to deal with, and it comes in all kinds of little ways. IT has, I think in some ways, facilitated consumerism where people send in their orders for this. I sometimes feel like a grocer as I'm sending orders to the pharmacy. Um, before I came here, Rita Doyle sent me a message and says, please make sure to mention the personal doctor. I think personal doctoring is in for a hard time. I worked in a practice for several years where I was a personal doctor. That was the philosophy we had. It's going to be very difficult to keep that theme of my doctor. I would like to develop uh, Claire's uh, theme. We are going to have to think about boundaries where we put the boundaries. We cannot take on what is expected of us. Those boundaries are going to have to be put in somewhere. Ronald Reagan memorably said that the four most uh, words that the public should fear most was when the government said, we're here to help. Well, the three words that we should learn to dread most is ask your GP. And we, I, I do think we will have to define much more what we're for and sending, giving young ones six certificates for a day off school or whatever isn't my idea of what a GP should be. So I do think we have to go back. I, I, I envy the authenticity of Dr. Zia's work, not the outcome, not, not what has happened to your doctor, but there is an authenticity in that work and we have become uh, embroiled in, I think, first world problems. 
that can be dealt with by anybody else rather than ask your GP. So, I'd like... I'd, I'd like to bring in uh, Dr. Knut Mo, and Knut uh, had a rather uh, circuitous route into medicine. He did, uh, he did business and uh, political science in, in Trinity, first of all, and then worked in finance in the UK before returning to Ireland. So really, any business, medical, or political questions you might like to ask, he's your man. <laughs> No, pr no pressure there at all. Um, I suppose my role in the college is I'm the NEGS director, so um, I suppose that stands for the Network of Establishing GPs, and, it, and it's to advocate um, for the um, GPs in the first five years, uh, give them a helping hand, and, and be a voice to the college. And I suppose I've been fortunate enough to be involved in some discussions recently when we did an internal think tank uh, on the, the working group on the future of general practice, and it, and it gave an opportunity to, to think about where we see general practice going and, uh, and where we see the fundamental problems. We're training more GPs, 250 up to 350. Um, there's five, 700 due to retire, whatever the numbers you believe. They're, that's clearly not enough. Um, in, in terms of on top of that, you know, if you've got 250 GPs now, you, do you have 250 full-time equivalents? No, you don't. You have 180, 200. You might have 20, 30, 40, 50 of those emigrating. Um, people are, I suppose, even within the full-time equivalents, we need to now promote work-life balance for people to have longevity in practice. The, the work that we're doing, the clinical work, is generating more non-clinical work, and so people are there 7, 8, 9, 10 o'clock in the evenings. Um, it's not sustainable, and that bleeds out into social media. It bleeds out into, into the pressures of general practice, and is it any wonder that medical students aren't really drawn into a career of medical practice when a lot of what they see is the negative, when there's huge amounts of positives, and we all know that we're all here and it's our career, and we, and for the most part, I think we really all enjoy it. Um, so that goes back to medical school. You know, I don't think, other than UL, which is, you know, the most, it, it's had a, a recently formulated brand new curriculum, which is heavily focused on general practice. Other medical schools don't have that. And so people get two, three weeks, maybe, of, of general practice training. Um, I love the idea of Clara said of, of actually encouraging people or forcing all trainees, um, mandating, yes, exactly, no, for, uh, making it part of their core training and not just human factors days or things like that, actually having a rotation um, where people actually understand that, you know, send, asking your GP to do this, you know, our job is keeping 99% of stuff out of hospitals. So turfing stuff from, from the hospitals out to general practice is, is only going to lead to more stuff going into hospitals. So we, we have to have, I think everybody has to understand the power, the value of general practice, but also the benefits of it. And I think that needs to come back to, to, to medical school training as well, that yeah, I, I think, getting us more involved in terms of curriculum development and training at, at university level will have knock-on effects in, in terms of getting people, drawing people into general practice. I think portfolio careers are, are a thing here to stay. Um, I think there's mixed views on them, but I think people need to have that perhaps some non-clinical time um, that, where they're not being dragged every which way with queries and, and non-academic requests and um, or non-clinical requests. And I, I think we'll, we'll find that people will diversify in order to be able to sustain a career because the day of a five-day-a-week personal GP, uh, as Tom says, is, is 
gone because burnout is just the stresses and strain. Our work is more complex than it ever was. General practice 20 years ago is very different to general practice of today, is very different to general practice in 20 years' time. And all our jobs are incredibly different you know, to, to each other. So there's no such thing as one general practitioner. But I think positivity in, in terms of the benefits of the career need to be um, brought out into the media a little bit more to draw people back in. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, Knut. I might come back to you in, in just a moment, but just if any of the audience, we have about 10 minutes left before we move on to the next section. So if anyone has any questions or comments you'd like to make, there is a speaker in the center of the auditorium. So if anybody would like to go to that, and maybe if you have any questions or comments you'd like to make, please do so. Ewan, have you any, any comments on this? Yeah, look, I just wanted to come back to a comment that uh, Bruce said, and this is having a strength, what, what, what we call in Australia, or the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia call a strength-based conversation where we don't talk about deficit, we talk about advantage, and we talk about opportunity. Um, and I think uh, I'm from the Australian College of General Medicine, Karen from uh, Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. I think we both have that strength-based view about what we're talking about. I think that where I sit in my rural community, communities around me are closing down, GPs are leaving their practices, they're going broke. One of the things that I'm, keeps me open is that I have young doctors training as general practitioners with an advanced scope of practice in one discipline where you can then through your community have a whole of community approach where each doctor has their little part of their practice that they're a specialist in. And it's this approach to generalism which is a general practitioner who, is a, who has primary care training, works in general practice but has an advanced scope of practice in a particular area of interest, whether it's population health, Aboriginal health, obstetrics, anaesthetics, surgery, in our rural practices, um, but can practice emergency medicine to what the community needs. And, and we've really captured the imagination in that uh, in Australia, and we're moving towards a shared view of what we call the National Rural Generalist Program, which really focuses on our rural and remote but also will lead into the rediscovery of generalism within general practice and rediscovery of, of our identity. Um, so I might uh, throw back to Karen just to have a, a comment on generalism and, and your view of uh, general practice from that strength-based approach. And also to say that Karen uh, created a Facebook group called GPs Down Under um, and it's an extraordinary number of GPs have come together on that book. And I might, I mean, do you want to tell me about that? Um, well, I, I think um, generalism is, you know, GPs are masters of complexity, but we just don't know it. And I think that Ewan described having uh, a, a community around you that supported you, but in my 30 years of practice, that's what we've always done. We've had. Um, the rather gendered um, women doing a lot of women's health. Um, we've had doctors who had, you know, particular interests in skin health um, and so forth. And uh, even in the cities, uh, doctors doing uh, anaesthetic lists with uh, gastroenterologists and so forth. So we, we, we've always had that kind of cross-referral in between um, general practitioners. And I think we should celebrate that um, in terms of having a specific interest, but grounded in generalism. 
And in the RACGP, which is 40,000 members, we have um, 34 faculties of specific interests. So these are people who may have a particular interest in Indigenous health, they may have a particular interest in climate health, they may have a particular interest in refugee health or diabetes or so forth. So um, it's not a formal qualification, but I think the idea that general practice is one career um, you know, we reinvent ourselves all the time. I left one practice, went to another practice where all of a sudden I'm facing addiction medicine from my strongly paediatric and women's health. And I think, oh, blimey, I've got to go and <laughs> bone up a bit more on some addiction uh, and uh, uh, medicine. So we do that all the time. We're adaptable. And I think we have to sing that praise. We are absolutely experts at complexity. We're not super subspecialists. We have a generalist approach to our specific interests. And we must really declare that. So I have a lot of hope about that. Um, and in terms of GPs down under, well, I think it's uh, Stephanie DiGiorgio, who you'll know from the UK, um, started up Re Resilient uh, GP. And uh, Stephanie and a group of, there's a couple of Irish guys too, and I can't remember their name, apologies. We had a small um, Google Hangout group back in 2011 where we did some pretend uh, debriefing and so forth, just exploring the platforms. And so Stephanie's gone on to develop Resilient GP in the, in, uh, the UK and uh, I developed GPs down under, which is 9,500 GPs. And we share basically cases, but in amongst that is a lot of sometimes, uh, political advocacy, but also uh, peer support, which is so important. And it helps people who are otherwise isolated because general practice is an isolated profession. One patient, one doctor, one room at a time. It helps people benchmark. It helps them serendipitously learn. So, you know, adult learning principles, you might purposefully learn, but you may also serendipitously learn when you observe what other doctors are talking about. So I think that's called hudagogy, and I don't want to go into that, but anyway. So <laughs> um, I think there is a lot of hope, but we've got to also stand up and declare that we love our profession that we like it and that we won't tolerate crap, basically, from government anymore, which is uh, part of our role as presidents uh, to do that, um, to basically say, no, we're actually the experts in this and what you're doing is, um, is, is absolutely unacceptable. I'd just like to make a comment to Claire, and that's that I think you're right, but you're wrong about general practice immersion. I think I don't want someone in their postgraduate intern years in my practice who doesn't want to be there. They should be in general practice, first year medical school, second year medical school, third year medical school, fourth year medical school. I think it's too late afterwards and I don't want them there. I've had them there for six months as a registrar and I remember one student uh, one young GP saying, I said to her, come and have a look at this, I'll show you how to take a foreign body off a slit lamp. And she said, oh, I don't want to do that. I've got no interest in it. Whereas students always say, I want to do it, I want to do it. So we need to grab them when they're hungry. And I think that's what U University of Limerick is doing. I think we can all do more and more of it. We're changing our medical course in Queensland and we're wanting to expose students to general practice right through year one, right through year two. They need the understanding, but I think they need the understanding early. The beauty of that too is you get some converts along can, the way. Can I respond? A lot of GPs who want to be GPs don't want to do hospital medicine, so I, I think you should, I think what one wants to do and what one should do are two completely different. I think you picked it up, but actually the reason isn't about getting them to understand our work. It's about getting to understand complexity, 
in a community setting because come what may, whatever specialty you go into, you are going to be dealing with chronic comorbidity and complexity. And there isn't a limitless amount of funding. We see that. So I don't really care whether they want to or not. I think they have to because that's the only way they're going to learn. I didn't want to, to, to do a, a obstetrics, but I had to as part of my GP training. I, I think the... Uh, just picking up on a few points, and I know we've got to finish in a second. The, the problem about, number one, we need to stop the word portfolio career. No other specialty talks about portfolio career. It makes me feel like I'm a salesman going round. I think what we're talking about is the flexibility of the working life of which some people work, and the Australians de facto, uh, and yourselves work in different areas that may not be within the consulting room seeing traditional GP patients. And the other problem I see facing us is we, we are victims of our own success. When GPs are taking, doing obstetrics, doing amputations, doing everything, then what is, what is a GP? It becomes that we are everything that's left after everybody else doesn't want to do the bits. So I don't know the answer to it, and I'm the problem as well. I, I've got a special interest in mental health. I led substance misuse. I now lead gambling. But I think we need to find a way of articulating that actually the generalist, and I think you did it very well, the generalist, the GP brings generalist skills to wherever they're doing, and we're masters of complexity. But I don't know how we're going to do this because it is a wonderful career. I would do it again time and time and time again. But we're full, and I don't know how we're going to square that circle. Verkov say that we are a social science. I mean, you know, that we, we part of what our, our we do is a social science, and that's why it's complex. Um, I just wanted to finish on one comment about hurling, because in Australia, <laughs> hurling has a slang term for vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> so, here too? Okay. So, I'm a bit confused by what's going on out there. <laughs> so, I'd like to thank my panel, really, for, for, for joining us uh, this morning. To, to, to you and to Tom, to Knut, to Karen, uh, Bruce, uh, Claire, and especially Dr. Dr. Zia for you know for all your insights. I think we share common challenges. The the love of our profession I think shines from what everybody has said. And certainly when I was a student, uh, I spent a week in and only a week it, with a GP in Clonakilty, and I knew that I wanted to be a GP after that, and I've never regretted that decision. But it was that immersion for one week only in general practice. Um, so I, I think we have a very bright future, but I think we also need to be very clear from what our, our speakers here have said, that we need to be very clear about where we're going and what we can and cannot do in the future and how we articulate that. So I'd like to thank the audience for participating and joining us here at the conference, and we hope you enjoy the rest of the, the conference. I let our speakers return to the, to the audience, and I'd like to invite our... Um, and Tom, if you want to stay. So thank you very much. You might give them a round of applause. That was a recording from our annual conference held as part of the Rural Wonka Conference in the University of Limerick in June 2022. Thanks for listening to this episode of GP Works. There are lots more episodes to listen to and you can subscribe to GP Works wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Aileen O'Mara and thanks for listening. <laughs>